So it's AI with blockchain, with big data. Buzzword bingo. Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Women Tech Charge with me, Amory Maffedon. I am your host. Today I am joined by co-founder of Entrepreneur First, co-founder of Code First Girls, member of the AI Council. There are so many things I could list off on this. Her, her actual name is Alice Bentink. How do we enable people to become founders? You know, in Silicon Valley, if you're walking down the street and say to someone, have you ever thought about being a founder? They'll be like, well, uh, duh, you know, I founded three companies, I've invested in two and, you know, of course. Female founders on the programme, they're often much more willing to work with somebody who they've sort of compromised with. There are so many different versions of entrepreneurship. Mm. Whatever kind of version you take, whether it's um, being kind of a, a sole founder who just does things by themselves or mm. whether it's building a team and all the rest of it. I think these, these skill sets and these mindsets are just totally invaluable right mm. now. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming to join us. You are a woman taking charge, I would say. Trying to, yes. Yes, personified. I want to go back to the beginning of your story. Let's start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. Little Alice <laughs> grew up whereabouts? I grew up in the New Forest, um, so on the south coast in uh, this amazing national park. It's the kind of place where ponies and cows roam freely. It sounds magical. Really rural. It's the sort of place that until you're about 13 is absolutely divine. Okay. And then there's that awful bit between 13 and 17 <laughs> where you can't drive exactly. and you literally can't leave. <laughs> so. Other than on horseback. Oh, I was just obsessed with animals. You know, we were surrounded by animals um, and I was completely obsessed with goats, Okay, obviously. Um, and <laughs> over time grew up a herd, grew a herd of sort of nine goats no that way. I um, trained to do various things. And uh, I think it's the sort of thing that if YouTube had been around, I definitely would have been a YouTube star because goats are just the most hilariously cute animals. And now goats are kind of everywhere on YouTube and Instagram. 50,000 followers on Instagram and 80,000 likes on Facebook. She made social media pages for the goat with tons of videos showing their daily shenanigans. Right, so that's that sounds like a, a really good beginning of the story. <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? How do we go from goats to entrepreneur first? That's quite a big jump. Um, so none of my family are in business and business is definitely not, I don't know, there's just Business wasn't even a thing when I was growing up Um, and tech. uh, My brother was um, very into technology and was building his own computers when he was young. But really, it was kind of quite um, peripheral to me. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in sixth form, I did Young Enterprise. And Young Enterprise, you start with like a tenner, right? You start with a tenner, yeah. Yeah. And you um, then have to kind of come up with a product. I just loved it. And it was just the beginning of kind of understanding that business was a thing and that startups were a thing and just the rush of having a small team creating a product and then selling it to people and they would give you money and I just thought that was just the best thing in the world mind's blowing and we created these purses that we made by hand that was incredibly laborious and um the margin was terrible Mm -hmm. and then we what we worked out was because we were in all girls school Mm. actually what teenage girls would pay for was um, parties with boys and so the margins on that were amazing and so we started throwing parties with boys schools <laughs> as part of Young Enterprise yeah and started oh, wow. making um, a lot more money mm-hmm. and really loved Young Enterprise and did a business studies A level as well Okay, and that was the point where I was like actually maybe I want to get into this business thing okay. and try this business thing mm-hmm. um, 
but it was really it did feel really foreign because my dad was military my mum was a doctor mm-hmm. um, and I don't think anyone in our wider family or circle was in business at all and then went off to Nottingham and studied management studies oh, okay cool so we stayed within within the business world we did with, yes. with you kind of your, your dream you saw the, <laughs> the animals for the last time and then yes, looked forward goodbye. <laughs> okay so Nottingham you're doing this this management business degree yeah then what happens um, so when I was at Nottingham, I got involved in a student organisation called uh, Inactus, where okay. you create social enterprises um, oh. from scratch and basically help the local community or different uh, different groups by building these kind of social enterprises. Mm. And again, it was just kind of reaffirmed for me how much impact small businesses could have yeah. and kind of the power of creating things from scratch. And that was when I first sort of heard of management consulting as a career path. Oh, okay. Um, I think like a careers fair or something like that right. and um, decided that I was going to be a management consultant and right. that that was going to be the career path for me as you do when you're 20 <laughs> um, and so decided to do whatever it would take to become a management consultant so did the internships and um, all the societies and everything that would give me the kind of CV to become a management consultant mm-hmm. um, and applied to McKinsey and, and that became my um, graduate cool. job. Um, so you started at McKinsey, mm-hmm. you enjoyed it presumably? Was it everything you hoped? I mean, the the main thing is the work is just so interesting and very Mm. full on and the hours are crazy. Mm. Um, But I mean, the real amazing thing about it was just the people, Mm -hmm. Um, just the so smart, so interesting, so ambitious, um, so kind of like sparky that um, I made some amazing, amazing friends there that I Mm. still see regularly and um, the kind of network that I built as well. So how do you decide to transition from McKinsey to entrepreneur first? I'd always wanted to do my own thing and ever since doing Young Enterprise I'd sort of had it in the back of my mind like how do I get back to that how do I how do I build my own company yeah um, and it felt like so I was 25 at this point okay. there, there would be no better time I had an offer to return to McKinsey so the risk was reasonably low mm. and I was young and had kind of nothing to lose no mortgage no dependents and so I started talking to uh, my friend Matt who was also at McKinsey with me um, and a couple of other McKinsey people as well and we we started coming up with our kind of first startup idea Mm. and did um, what is a very um, non-startup-y approach where we built an Excel model of our startup idea to (laughs) understand whether it would work or not. Very consultant-y. Very consultant-y. And we did the model and that Mm. took about a week and then we decided that obviously the model showed it was never going to work so scrap that idea. Um, and then McKinsey at the time was working on a uh, report for the government around tech city. So this is back in 2011 when uh, Silicon Roundabout and all the stuff around Old Street was really taking off. The Mayor of London and I are delighted to announce that government is going to invest £50 million to build Europe's largest indoor civic space on the site of the Old Street roundabout. One of the recommendations was there should be a graduate scheme for entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, and so Matt and I decided that actually we could we could do that let's see if we can turn that into something yeah um and so that's when we first decided to take the leap and so we wanted to to kind of say okay well if you're super ambitious imagine the the impact you could have on the world by building your own company right um and then how do we make that happen so we've actually moved from graduates to now taking i think the average age is about 29 years old right um and so we take people who've been in industry for a while or who are leaving a phd or postdoc or who you know the age range is probably 24 to i think the oldest person we had was 66 but that's nice. that's a outlier um <laughs> we still love you if you're 66 or oh, 67 we you, still should, do. you should apply come and join us. <laughs> 
um but yeah this this idea of how do we enable people to become founders and you know in silicon valley if you're walking down the street and say to someone have you ever thought about being a founder they'll be like well uh, duh, you know i founded three companies i've invested in two and mm. you know of course mm. um and we just want to get to the place where in the uk you see our most ambitious and talented people have that same approach where they're involved in startups they're building the next wave of the economy the next generation of the economy mm. um and they're building kind of globally important companies from the uk and what's your definition of startups so is it specifically tech startups is it broader than that we're very focused on tech you so are, um, okay our big thing is building scalable businesses right. so businesses that can impact people across the world yep. and so pretty much the easiest and cheapest way to do that is through building technology mm -hmm. companies mm -hmm. so the majority of our portfolio uses some sort of artificial intelligence within oh, really? what they okay. do do they really use artificial intelligence we're actually quite picky about this you so are, okay. <laughs> yes little known fact something like 60 percent of ai startups across europe aren't actually used yeah i mean one of the <laughs> one of my least kind of favorite types of pictures is when somebody's like so it's ai with blockchain with big data buzzword bingo so we should talk a little bit about code first gals mm. um, i know this story but i'm going to ask it for, for the <laughs> listener how does code, how what is code first gals first off uh, so Code First Girls is a social enterprise that goes into universities and teaches women to code for free. Although now you do non-university we women do, as well. Yes, so yeah. we teach women um, of sort of university age, so sort of 18 to 25 is our sweet spot. How do we get women at the point where they are thinking about their career choices and how do we make sure that they have the kind of skills and confidence and language to uh get a career in tech and it came out of a problem that you saw running ef yeah i mean um a problem that i think the entire tech industry struggles <laughs> with which uh you know the first two cohorts for ef we got um about 20 percent of our applications from women okay. and at the time i was like this is crazy this is so bad now i realize that actually this is just kind of uh, that's almost what good looks like for the industry the which is yeah. unbelievably depressing mm. um but the original idea was okay well, well we'll run this sort of marketing campaign called code first girls where we'll get women skilled up technically and then they'll want to become founders mm. and it turned out that actually the, those two two things didn't link skilling the women up technically didn't automatically make them want to become founders okay um but what we found was there was just so much demand mm. um from young women who wanted to learn to code and wanted to sort of just understand what this world was about mm. um that code first sort of begin to run away with us and um became so uh successful that we we span it out of entrepreneur first as its own separate um uh, social enterprise mm. so now we're teaching sort of a couple of thousand women a year to learn to code across all across the uk mm. um and the idea is that uh it's these sort of very very low barrier to entry so it's on campus you're with a group of women who are your own age it's an amazing community mm. um you very quickly learn how to build a website and for a lot of the women who go through that's kind of it i didn't come from a technical background and um basically had had to upskill mm. and one of the um, guys on our first EF program taught me one summer he took me through the Stanford Computer Science 101 course oh yeah yeah um, and which is widely available actually it's, a, it's an online, yeah. online open course so check it out um, and so I did that for eight weeks and um, built my first website mm -hmm. and all the rest of it and I hated it to be totally honest I oh. dreaded every he taught me for four hours oh, every wow. day oh no I hated it I absolutely <gasps> dreaded it but I'm so so glad I did it and I think 
it helped me understand technology. It helped me understand the process and the language and, and the thinking behind how technology works. But also, I'm not going to become a developer. And that's, no, that's it's okay. A, it's a lit- literacy thing. So I always exactly, end up saying, yeah. you don't learn to write so you can be Shakespeare or be a professional writer. <laughs> yeah. It's because it's a way of communicating. Yes. The same way as you learn to read but to understand the world around you. So yeah. it's more a literacy thing of you're going to have to use websites you're going to have to use this technology like it's not going away it's creeping more and more into our lives and our world there's a small proportion who try it who hate it i'm joking (laughs) small proportion (laughs) who absolutely love it and it does change their career paths Mm, and mm. they do conversion courses to become developers Developers, as a profession um and i still there was one uh woman who was part of our first code first girls course and she came in as a like declared technophobe Mm. um and she'd always wanted to work in sort of um heritage buildings and and, uh, had absolutely no interest in technology at all i don't Mm. even know why she applied Mm -hmm. um and she did code first girls and just fell in love with it she became a professional developer that's so much of what the good that stemettes and code first girls can do is just giving women that little taster that then transforms their Mm. aspirations and you don't know what you don't know we're not saying sign up and do a degree for three years we're not saying pay however many thousand pounds it is to do this course it's just come and try it yeah we get loads of linguists mm. um, and loads of people that study languages and who are coming at it from together it's all the same it's, side it's of the brain the same, isn't it? yeah time for a break send me a message using the hashtag hashtag women take charge and please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to podcasts That's kind of how you started and how you how you where you where you're at now. Mm. What is the actual program? So what does it actually look like? You kind of apply. You're an ambitious technical person. Mm-hmm. You apply for entrepreneur first. What happens on when you're accepted? What happens on day one? Day one, you start with 99 other people, and okay. we've got offices across Europe and Asia. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Let's say you're in London, you start with 99 other people. And at the point where you join us, you don't have an idea, you don't have a team, you don't have anything. And we've just selected you based on your founder potential. Right. Um, so we're looking for really smart people, people who can bring a, a kind of hard skill, uh, people who are committed to the point of kind of shutting off everything else in their life so they can be a founder. Right. Um, and people who are contrarian. So a little bit unusual, challenge status quo, a little bit of megalomania, all those kind of things are okay. good. Um, <laughs> and the, the first uh, eight weeks are all about finding a co-founder. So right. you're basically sorting through these 99 other people to find the right co-founder for you. And so we have this eight-week process, which um, is a little bit like sort of speed dating on steroids, right. where you know every couple of days you're trying somebody new to right. see if you can find the right fit. Um, so during that eight weeks, most people go through about two and a half other people, mm. two and a half other potential co-founders. Right. About 80% of people get into a team. So even though they're kind of strangers at the beginning it's such an intense quite an emotional process as well that um that we end up with these with the majority of them getting and is it mostly pairs it is pairs oh Um, it is pairs because you're trying to do something quite complicated you're trying to both build a relationship with a person who Mm. you don't know Mm. alongside deciding an idea to work on Mm. and what we found is that you can do that with two people but in a team of three that becomes incredibly complex so teams of two um and do you ever have anyone that's a sole founder as part of the program very rarely okay. yeah sometimes yeah. um the fault fo- sole founders normally have come in with something existing so a piece of technology or right. because it's just really hard to make a lot of progress when you're by yourself mm. i think also emotionally it's just 
I mean, I'm so glad I have a co-founder because it's just, being a founder is relentlessly hard. I don't know how people do it by themselves. So I had a co-founder and don't have a co-founder anymore. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. Emotionally, there is a lot to go through, but I think if you don't have the right match or human beings are so complex yeah. that actually... It's almost worse if it's not the right person. Exactly. Mm. So it was something that I found, uh, as when, kind of when we, when we parted ways, it was something that I kind of noticed that a lot of people have been through that thing where actually we've parted ways, it didn't mm. work out. I think this is the thing. It's so hard to find a co-founder found it in the wild mm. because you are um you it's very hard to test people and so much yeah. of what we do at entrepreneur first is just giving people the opportunity to test co-founders yeah. and yeah. before you jump in and do the sort of marriage part mm. you actually have the chance to do some proper dating i get asked quite a lot or whenever i'm in kind of entrepreneurship events advice that kind of thing people ask quite a lot where do i find a co-founder where can I find a technical co-founder? All those kinds of questions. What would you say, is there anything you can say across all the matching in the process you've been through to say here are maybe three things that you should look for or you should test in looking for co-founders? Yeah, great question. And one that um, we hear often because it's the, the process Tough. is really, really hard. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is create a structure that is easy for you to get out of. So instead of sort of meeting someone for coffee, committing to be a co-founder, incorporating a company, um, having everyone's names um, mm. on the cap table, mm. um, take it slow. So set up a structure where you say, cool, so we're going to do four weeks of testing mm. um, and this is what we're going to uh, achieve during that period. Mm -hmm. And at the end of each week, we're going to sit down. I'm going to have a really honest conversation about how this is going. Mm -hmm. And then the one thing that we evaluate our teams on that is a really reliable predictor of um, whether the team will last long term is productivity. Okay. So can this team, day on day, week on week, be exceptionally productive? Mm -hmm. And it's that sort of, you know, two plus two equals five thing where mm -hmm. each individual has to feel they are more productive because of their co-founder rather than less productive. Mm -hmm. Actually, this is something I do see with our female founders on the program where they're often much more willing to um, work with somebody who uh, they've sort of compromised with, okay. where they're basically carrying them to some extent right. or chivying them to get stuff okay. done yeah. um, and I would encourage everyone to be very very discerning about mm. their co-founder because if it's week two and you're having doubts trust me by you know year two it's, it's not it, exactly yeah. you really need to have somebody who is always making you feel more productive the other question I want to ask you which relates a little bit to, to Code First Girls mm. is finding a senior team mm. or finding a CEO one thing that I've always noticed or appreciated or admired from afar is you set up Code First Girls kind of alongside Entrepreneur First to kind of solve a problem on that and it was kind of like running the two companies mm. at the same time and so you had to go out to find a CEO for that kind of sub company slash mm. side company slash side entre uh, social enterprise what were you looking for in that position and how were you able mm. to find CEO? The key thing with those sort of really critical senior hires is you just have to trust the person. Um, and I think the hard thing as a founder is you do have to step back pretty mm. fully. You have to trust them enough that when they make decisions that you disagree with or take different actions, you trust that they're making the right call. Particularly when you're building a startup yourself, as you'll know, like you and the startup become so blurred um, that it's kind of hard to, you know, um, detangle the two. Yeah. So you've gone global. What have been the hardest bits of this journey? It's been nine years, eight years. Eight years. Yeah. What have been the hardest bits of this last eight years? 
I mean, all of it, to be totally honest. <laughs> it's been hard. To it's every been day. hard. And I think this is the thing about being a founder that um, I can't imagine anything I would have done over the last eight years that would be as hard, as emotionally challenging, as sort of oh, wow. mentally challenging as, as building a company. Okay. And um, I also can't imagine anything that would be as rewarding. And I think this is the incredible thing about being a founder, that you're constantly doing things that you just don't know how to do mm. at all. Mm. Um, and just at the point where the company's 10 people, and you're like, right, I've got it. I know how to manage this. This is working. <laughs> when we first started, the thing that was really hard was... Um, I think we had a lot of existential dread that actually this was just a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And most people that we talked to who knew anything about startups was like, this is a bad idea. You can't take people who don't know each other. You can't take people who don't have ideas. This is not how it works. Do not do this. Mm. Um, And the only reason we kept going was because we found customers who really wanted to do it. Mm. But it was probably two years where we had no way to make money. We were, you know, basically, you know, making ends meet very... It was really, really tough. I suppose now... It's just a different kind of fear where it's sort of we've got 120 people across six countries and it's just a lot a lot of people who are dependent on you in some way. And we work with 800 entrepreneurs a year and, you know, it's 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 a lot to manage. But Mm. I really love like I want Entrepreneur First to exist and I want it to be successful. And Mm. I'm very, very happy to dedicate a large part of my life to that. Mm. I also think if you're the kind of person that defines yourself by work, which I do and I think whatever I did I'd be working crazy hours and throwing mm. myself into it that mm. how lucky I am to be do, to be able to do that for my something own company so and something I really care about yeah running a business you never you never really know where the next customer is coming from like it's not a set thing of the no. salary will be there so when you're the person that's in charge of everyone's salaries when you're the person that's ultimately in charge mm. of the partnerships and everything else coming in so many companies are looking for people with entrepreneurial skill sets mm. and entrepreneurial mindsets mm. that you know I think probably 10 years ago if you had a company that failed maybe it would be harder to get a job afterwards whereas now we see that our founders who don't make it (laughs) they get snapped up so quickly so I think it it has shifted and people are beginning to understand that just the process of going through trying to build a company is is just such a valuable lesson and accepting failure to be able to survive I think this is the thing you know we at Entrepreneur First build a very particular kind of company which Mm. is um, high growth normally venture capital backed Mm. Um, but there are so many different versions of entrepreneurship Mm. and I think Mm. whatever kind of version you take whether it's um, being kind of a a sole founder who just does things by themselves or Mm. whether it's Building a team and all the rest of it. Um, I think these these skill sets and these mindsets are just totally invaluable right mm. now. We don't know what's going to happen to work, and I think it is going to change hugely. Mm. Um, but this skill set will prepare you better than any other. I want to end on what's next. Mm. So EF is around the, the world. <laughs> You're taking I live on over. A plane. <laughs> yeah, you do live on a plane between here and Singapore. Um, before we can inhabit Mars and we have Entrepreneur mm. First Mars, where next? What next? Uh, what are the plans that you can share with us, of course? Yeah, sure. So um, we are uh, we're in Paris, London, Berlin, and Europe, and we're in um, Bangalore. Uh, and Singapore and Hong Kong in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just announced we're opening Toronto oh, in nice. 2020. Very cool. Um, and I think also when we look at what's going on in the world at the moment, Asia is just so exciting. When will you go to Nigeria? Probably in the next couple of years, I okay, would imagine. Cool. Um, it feels like at the moment the uh, kind of tech Asian growth curve is just incredible Um, and we want to capture that it feels like the sort of Africa and South America growth curve Mm. is sort of the next wave Mm. Um, but our whole big thing is wherever the world's most talented and most ambitious individuals are that's where we want to be plus the ecosystem 
Well, that's the thing. It's yeah. waiting. It's, you just have to wait a little bit for the ecosystem yeah, to exist. To the world is missing out on so many of its best founders just mm. because of where they were born mm. um, and just because of where they're located. And mm. Entrepreneur Fest, in many ways, is like a um, ecosystem in a box. Mm. Like you find your co-founder, you find your idea, we give you funding, we get you funded. We can help build all these ecosystems around the world and really give access to entrepreneurship to thousands of people who, who haven't had it previously. Our mission is to transform the lives of the most impactful people and we want to keep doing that for as, as long as possible. Thank you very much. Thanks for all you do. Oh, well, thank you very much. Right back at you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, but thank you very much as well for coming on the podcast. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, and I hope lots of people listening take up, take charge, take yes. up the call, the call Now's to the action, um, and go and learn to code. Even if you are going to hate the four hours that you spend doing it every day, do maybe. it. It's still worth it. Even if you hate it, although pick somewhere that you're not going to hate. <laughs> would be my suggestion. So yeah. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you. <laughs>